Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you all. For those of you who might not know me, my name is Jonathan. I am the campus pastor here, and uh, I have the great privilege to be able to walk through this text that we have just heard uh, this morning. Uh, Before we, or as we get going here, let me ask you a question. Uh, when is the last time you overreacted, all right? When's the last time you, you took that little tiny molehill and you made it into a giant mountain, all right? I, I remember when, when I was going to propose to my wife, right? She was just my girlfriend at the time. I, I had this big plan about how I was going to do it, right? And so I had enlisted uh, the help of some of my friends, and uh, we were going to go on this great, fabulous date, and then we would come back to a park, right? near her house, and I was going to get my friends to, to set up lights all around this little gazebo thing that was there, and so they were going to decorate with lights, and so the day beforehand, so the day before uh, I was going to propose, uh, my friends and I were out at this park, right? We were going to set up, just make sure we know everything, where everything's supposed to go, how we're going to plug in a bunch of Christmas lights in the middle of a park, all that good, kind of good stuff. And as we are going through this, I see out of the corner of my eye my wife's car. I I see my wife's car. It's actually the same car. We still have a little red hatchback. I see this red hatchback slowly driving by the park, going over to where her house is. And I can see the driver staring at us as, as going along. And I was absolutely crushed. I mean, I had been planning this for so long. This was going to be a wonderful surprise, right? And now here she is watching us get set up the day before. I mean, she knows exactly what's going to happen now. And I mean, I was beside myself. I like, like, I can't believe this has happened. I mean, why even propose at this point? Like, just, just overreacting. All right, I was overreacting. My friends finally said, "Look, give her a call. Maybe, maybe it wasn't her." I'm like, "No, that that's her car. Like, I I, I recognize it." So thankfully, I gave her a call. Yeah, it turns out she was at her friend's across the other side of town. That was just a red hatchback. <laughs> they were driving slowly because it was a park zone. And they were looking at us probably because a bunch of guys in the middle of September in broad daylight were setting up Christmas lights. Of course they're staring at us looking at what we were doing. Right? I, was, I was way overreacting for, for what that was actually called for. But see, we have, we have the tendency to do that, don't we? We tend to jump to conclusions really quickly, and more often than not, we're jumping to the, to the worst-case scenario, right? We're jumping to, to some kind of negative conclusion right away. In fact, I, I would argue in general, we're, we're actually somewhat of a pessimistic society, right? Our, our outlook of what the future is going to be like is, is moderately pessimistic. Right? We don't generally think of the future being this bright, happy, wonderful place. No, most of the time we're kind of, ah, you know, things are probably just going to get worse at this point. And of course, what is it that every single person who is pessimistic actually says? I'm just being realistic, right? I'm just being realistic. This is just what, it, this is just what it's going to look like. And so this morning we're, we're looking at a, a story, a text where, where Elijah definitely has a pretty pessimistic view of life and an outlook of of what is going on. But the question that we kind of have to wrestle with is, is he overreacting or is he just being realistic? And the answer I think that we're going to find in our text is actually both. He's both being a little pessimistic, but he's he's also seeing some things clearly. 
In fact, as, as with many things, it just depends on what view you are taking. See, molehills always look like mountains when you're on the ground. And, and Elijah is very low. This is, this is perhaps his lowest moment of his entire life. And so everything seems like a massive problem that cannot be overcome. And all throughout, God is going to be lifting his view more and more to see things, not through his own human lens, but actually through what God is doing. And so this story is really a story of, of God showing us what it looks like to, to look through his eyes, right? Not, not just human eyes, but, but God's eyes. And what we're going to see is God is incredibly gracious and patient with us all throughout. So let's, let's walk through our story. As we get going, what you need to realize is actually before we can even start on our story, we have to back up one step to last week, right? This is picking up right after what we talked about last week. So if you are here with us, you'll know we looked at this, this confrontation that happened. God had sent Elijah the prophet to go and confront King Ahab. King Ahab was the king over Israel, and he is most notably a, a devout worshiper of this idol Baal. Right? King Ahab had very much dedicated his life to following Baal. And so God sends Elijah and says, all right, we're, we're going to have a contest. We're going to see who is the real God. And so Elijah shows up and he says, all right, here's what's going to happen. We're going to have these two altars. First God to set fire to it is the real God. We watch the prophets of Baal spend hours and hours and hours trying to make a spark and nothing happens. And in response, God shows up with just a pillar of flame that consumes the whole thing all at once, right? It's, it's no contest. God has decisively shown he is the true God. And so Elijah, in many ways, is on, he's on the victory march at this point. Like, this is, this is the highest moment of his life. This is great. Everything seems to be going well. But here, what we're going to see is everything is going to take a very sudden shift for him. At the end of the last chapter, Elijah does something which genuinely shocks us when we read it, and that is that the prophets of Baal are, are, are executed, all right? Now, we look at that and we're going, duh, don't like that. But this was their way of showing, look, we're going to have no room for this in our nation at all. But this is what eventually comes back and, and bites, uh, bites Elijah at the end. See, King Ahab, as he watches all of this happen, he, he's quite a passive onlooker. He's not, he's not repenting. He's not declaring that God is real. And he's also not getting rid of Baal. Like he, he's, he's trying to stand in the middle. But he goes back and he talks to his wife. His wife's name is Jezebel. This is the first time we're really starting to see Queen Jezebel at work. And what we're going to realize as we go through more and more of this story is that Queen Jezebel is the real one who is pulling the strings, right? She is the one. She is a terrifying woman in, in many ways. And so when Jezebel hears about what has all happened, she is furious. She sends a message to Elijah and basically says, it translates to, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to try and kill you. And Elijah hears that, and he is terrified. Elijah is panicked and freaked out. In verse 3 of our, our, our passage, it says this. It says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So Elijah, he is so scared, he leaves the country, right? He is leaving out of the northern kingdom of Israel, running down south to Judah. 
And then he gets into Judah and he keeps running south all the way until he gets to a city called Beersheba. He leaves his servant behind and he continues another full day's journey just into the wilderness. Elijah is panicked and scared. And we kind of look at that and you think, wait, Elijah, why? Why are you this afraid? I mean, haven't you just watched what, what, what God did on the mountain? I mean, this, this grand victory, God has spent three years protecting you, Elijah, over this past while Ahab was hunting you down in all these different countries. God protected you. Why are you now scared that Jezebel is involved? Well, certainly she was quite terrifying herself. But I think what we're intended to see here is that Elijah has very much taken his eyes off of what God is doing and all he is focusing in in on is what I can do and what Jezebel can do. And so Elijah becomes terrified, right? And, And more than just terrified, he is straight down into despair and depression, right? This is despair through human eyes. In verse four, we read, it says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Right? Elijah is, he is, he is depressed. He is, he is in despair. I mean, this is, this is as low as he gets. He can't see a way out of this mess. It, it seems completely hopeless. And so Elijah just simply says, all right, God, just please end it. Like, I'm tired of this. It's not working. Nothing is happening right? Elijah's just come down from this grand mountaintop, you know, confrontation, very literally mountaintop experience. And and, and all this sort of stuff, and he watches the, the people say, yeah, you're right, right? Yahweh, he is God. He's the only God. And then he comes back, and here is Jezebel going, actually, no, I'm going to kill every one of you. And Elijah just gives up hope. He goes, that's it. I mean, there's nothing we can do. All my work, all that, that work to try and show and vindicate God's name, it's going to come to nothing because here's Jezebel and she's just going to wipe me out. She's going to put me to death and they're just going to continue on serving Baal. So God, it's over, just end it. Right? Elijah is, is only looking at, at what he is able to do. Right? Despite after this massive moment of, of putting his faith to the test and, and God showing himself, he just collapses in. And, and if I'm really honest, of all the stories in Elijah's life, I mean, this is the one I understand the most. Right? I can't tell you how many times I've seen this pattern work out in my own life. Right? If you've been a Christian for, for a little while, you've probably seen even the same thing at work in your life. Right? Summer's the time when everyone goes off to camp, and, and if you've ever gone to camp or done some kind of spiritual retreat, you've probably seen this same pattern. Right? You go off, and it's, it's this amazing experience. You feel close to God. You're, you're walking with Him, and then you get back into daily life, and man, does it feel like a letdown. You just feel so much lower than, than, than you were before. You feel far more discouraged despite having been so close to God just, just a few moments ago. Right? You can ask any pastor, what, what's, what's the worst day of the week? It's Monday. It's not because you have to go back to work, not, not that. It's because after Sunday, after you spend hours and hours and hours getting ready and preparing for Sunday, Monday so often just feels like a letdown. What a waste. Did, did, did anything that I do matter at all? Right? You, you don't want to go through that, and yet that's the pattern that happens again and again. You don't have to preach to feel that. 
right? You share your faith with your coworker. You've, you've maybe spent days or, or weeks praying for an opportunity to begin to actually share your faith, right? I, I want to be able to do this. So God, give me this opportunity. Give me words. And so you actually do. You share your faith. And, and, and it goes, all right. They didn't hate you. They didn't accept Jesus on the spot. And you're kind of left afterwards and you think, well, why did I do that? Why did I spend all that, that energy, all that effort, and it feels like such a letdown afterwards? You feel far more depressed, and you think, well, why should I ever bother doing that again? But here's, here's my, my, my comfort and my reminder to you. Whenever you come to feel this way, two things. Number one, whenever you give yourselves to following God, we should expect spiritual warfare. Right? Whenever you are following after God, whenever you're giving yourselves to being obedient to what he's called you to do, the, the natural response is that you are engaging in spiritual warfare and there's pushback. Right? 2 Timothy 3.12 just says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's always people who are going to try and push back. And as we work in a spiritual realm, of course there is spiritual pushback as well. So often, the, the despair or depression that we face is spiritual opposition because what we're doing is actually what God calls us to do. And, and so my reminder for us is don't, don't think something strange is happening to you, right? Whenever we talk with our, our life group leaders, we, we talk about what happens right before, you know, you're, you're going to gather together as your life group. What happens is you don't feel like doing it. Right? If anyone's ever led you know, life groups or, or any kind of group like that, you know that pattern, right? You don't feel like, oh, I, I don't really want to do that today. Of course not. That's called spiritual warfare. That's expected in the Christian life. We're going to wrestle through this, but the other thing to remember is we have to remind ourselves that's just the human lens. Whenever we're going through that, it means what we're doing is we're just focusing on, on what we can see, what we can accomplish, or what we can do, instead of realizing actually God is at work here, that he is doing things sometimes that we can't see. Elijah is in this absolute depression because he says, look, I, I did all this, but nothing changed. But Elijah, you don't know that. You can't see what's happened in people's hearts. You don't know what has gone on, how God has used your work on that mountaintop, Elijah, and the effects that it's going to have throughout the entire country. Elijah's become trapped in despair because all he's doing is looking through his human lens at what he can see instead of lifting himself and saying, but what is God at work doing? See, the thing is, whenever we do that, whenever we keep our eyes on what we can accomplish, it's never the full picture. We're not seeing everything. We're not seeing ultimately what God is doing. And so this text is not really a, a text about depression or despair. It's actually a text about how God meets him in this. I said this is one of Elijah's lowest moments. It is. But it's also where God meets him most powerfully. And so what I want us to see here is that the Lord is gracious and patient. So often throughout the Bible, we're told that God is, is gracious, he's merciful, and that he's patient with us. I think in this chapter, we get to see it. We see God's grace. We see God's patience with Elijah as he is wrestling through it. God has not abandoned him at all. After Elijah prays that God would simply just kill him, we read in verse 5, 
It says, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. God shows up to meet with Elijah in his lowest moment, at the lowest of the low, and he's going to take care of him. He doesn't come to rebuke him. He doesn't come to say, get your head together or give him a lecture. He simply comes and says, look, you need to eat something, get something to drink, and then have a rest, right? God made us. He actually knows that sometimes, and I know there's a bit of a tangent, sometimes the best thing you can do when you are down, when you're depressed, when you're in despair, is simply eat, drink some water, and go to bed. <laughs> Genuinely, that's sometimes what we need most. And God, God knows this, right? He made us like this. And so he says, Elijah, here's some food. Go to bed. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him and said, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, God shows up again a second time, gives him some more food, but now we're, we're intended to start to see a pattern here, right? right? We're, we're starting to see a few of these clues that are coming out. All throughout the series, we've been noticing that, that Elijah often looks a lot like Moses, right? If you know the story of Moses, Moses comes and he confronts Pharaoh, right? Elijah comes and he confronts King Ahab. Moses is, is opposing a lot of the gods of Egypt. Here is Elijah coming, opposing Baal, right? Moses spoke for God. Here is Elijah speaking for God. But now that the pattern is going to become far clearer for us to pay attention to. See, when Moses came to Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, that's where God gave him the, the Ten Commandments. That's where God met with him, right? And when he was up there, he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he doesn't eat. And so we're intended, as we read that, that verse, we're intended to start seeing, oh, oh, okay, there's some connections here with Moses, right? He's going to the Mount of God. All right, that's where Moses went. That's where, you know, the Ten Commandments came. That's where God's, you know, will was revealed to the people. In fact, if you know the story well, you'll know that there's this one point where, where Moses is wanting to see God, to see his glory. And God says, all right, I'm going to put you in a cave. I'm going to cover you up. I'm going to pass by you. And then you'll be able to see kind of the, the trailing embers of my glory, in Exodus 34, this is what we read. It says, the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. Right? This is how God would be known for, for generations on. He is a God who is merciful, gracious, forgiving sin, but doesn't allow evil to simply go on unchecked. Right? This is the revelation of God's character in clear terms. And so as Elijah is now heading up to Mount Horeb, we're meant to expect, all right, this is going to be a similar kind of experience to what Moses went through. And we're starting to wonder, okay, how is God going to reveal himself to us? In fact, God, God brings him up onto a, a cave on this mountain. And we're going, all right, I, I've heard the story. I, I know where this is going. But verse 9 says, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
which is such an interesting question for God to ask, right? And, and it's somewhat, you, uh, um, uh, could be taken a couple of different ways, right? Could God simply be saying, God, Elijah, why are you here? Or, or I think what God is getting at, Elijah, what's going on? Elijah, what are you doing here? What, what, what's happening? What, why are you here at this moment? Why are you so low, depressed, and, and, and struggling right now? Verse 10, we read, he, Elijah, said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's quite the answer Elijah gives to God, right? He's still clearly wrestling through all of this stuff. It's not just simply left him. He says, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who's following you. Now, if you've been with us through this series, you know that's not true. Just last week, we met a guy named Obadiah. He has served the Lord his whole life. In fact, Obadiah saved a hundred of God's prophets, hid them when, when, you know, people, when Jezebel was hunting them down. Elijah's not the only one left, but what we're seeing here, what does it look like to watch through human eyes? I'm all alone. I'm all alone. There's no one else. But I think the answer, uh, I think there's more to this answer that Elijah's giving. He's trying to say, God, your plan didn't work, right? The, the covenant you made with Israel, they've, they've gone away. They've forsaken it. It's no longer valid. They're not trying to follow after you, right? Elijah very much had this idea that, that after Mount Carmel, after this whole demonstration, it would be obvious and clear. Everyone would be following God now, and he's looking and he's going, but that didn't happen. God, your plan failed. So here I am. I'm back at the beginning. This is where the plan started. Here I am. What's the new plan? What are we going to do next? And here's where God's answer is so key. Verse 11 says, he, God said, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, same word with Moses, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Right? God sends these, these grand displays of his, of his power. Right? And, and very often, all three of those are associated with God's judgment. But God's not in any of it. See, God isn't there to bring down judgment, not on Elijah or even onto Israel. That's not where God is. Verse 12 says, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Your footnote will even say this can be translated as a thin silence. God demonstrates his presence, not in signs of judgment, but in quietness and peace, in stillness. And hear me, in a day and age that we live in, where we have distractions constantly, we, we, we intentionally have distractions in our lives all the time, right? When you are home alone, you, you throw on TV, you throw on music, you want something in the background just so that there's background noise. When you're driving in your car, very likely you're not simply driving in silence the whole time. And yet God reveals himself here in silence. 
I think sometimes we actually need a bit more quiet in our lives. Psalm chapter 37 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. There are times where stillness and peace is exactly what we need. And I would argue far more so when we are in despair, we need to be quiet with the Lord. Being silent in God's presence is a good thing. But again, I don't think that's all God is trying to say. In fact, I think God's silence here is intentional. God has not answered Elijah's complaint, at least not directly in one sense. Right? He hasn't given some new revelation. He hasn't given some new plan or, or explained his character again. Why not? Because God doesn't need to. Elijah is panicking because, God, your plan has failed, right? We, we need a new plan, and God is silent. Why? Because his plan hasn't failed. He doesn't need to describe what is going to happen. He's already told them, here is who I am. Right? I am still merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Elijah, that's still who I am. Right? I don't need to, to do this all over again. Has Israel been disobedient? Yes, but God is still loving. Have they broken the covenant? Yes, but God is still faithful. Right? God is still righteous and just. All of these things, nothing has changed. His plan of salvation has not been altered because of one hiccup that happened here, Elijah. In fact, I would argue God already knew this was going to happen. See, Elijah is so focused on what he can understand and he can control, he doesn't realize God has not been threatened by any of this. See, nothing changed for God. He was already aware of all of this. He doesn't need a new plan. His plan is still working exactly right. And hear me, when, whenever we are actually wrestling through that, that dark night of the soul, whenever we can't feel like I can lift my heads, when, whenever we feel just numb and like nothing matters in the world, what well, we need to remind ourselves, God has not changed. Despite what the chemicals in our brains might be telling us at that moment, God has not changed. He is still loving. He is still faithful. His promises are still true for every one of us. Yeah, we might feel like nothing matters, but God's plans are still at work. His plans have not failed. He does not stop being faithful or patient with us when we get it wrong. See, God's silence here actually speaks volumes. God is not panicked when Elijah shows up. He's not saying, I didn't know this would happen. I'm, I'm so worried. I'm so surprised. Hey, we need a new plan. No, God is quiet. Why? Because God's still calm. He already knows that this was going to happen, and he already knows what will still happen. God is not panicked when things seem to go wrong from our perspective. And he is gracious, and he is patient with us. God doesn't need a new plan because it hasn't failed. And so God asks Elijah again, what are you doing here? <laughs> and interestingly enough, Elijah answers in the exact same way, word for word. It's the exact same answer that he just gave. And, and we kind of look at that and we think, wait, 
shouldn't you have a new answer? <laughs> shouldn't you have realized something at this point, Elijah? And in one sense, I love the honesty the Bible's written with. No. Elijah still doesn't get it. He's still wrestling with this. He hasn't understood what God is even telling him at this moment. And here's what I'm saying. God is gracious and he is patient with us. At any point, God could have said, Elijah, you don't get it. That's enough. But he's not. God is continually speaking with them. And even when Elijah gives him the exact same answer, God is still patient with Elijah. Hear me, he is gracious and patient with us when we are stuck looking through our human eyes. And so in his grace, God is going to begin to answer in a new way. Verse 15 says, and the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. All right, first, that, that seems like a bit of an odd response, right? Elijah saying, look, everything's going terrible. God says, all right, go back. And you're thinking, wait, what? <laughs> But actually, understand what God is saying here. God says, well, well, my plan didn't fail. My plan hasn't stopped. So guess what, Elijah? Actually, there's still something for you to do. You are stuck thinking everything is over, everything is done. God's saying, no, actually, I, I've got the next step already worked out here. And so he begins to tell Elijah, here's what you're going to go do. You're going to go start anointing some new kings. All right, there's, there's going to be some successors going on here. Right? Go anoint Hazael. He's going to be king over Syria. Go anoint Jehu. He's going to be the new king over Israel. And in fact, go anoint Elisha. He's going to take over after you. Right? God is intentionally giving him this. Why? He's trying to lift his eyes to understand. God still understands the future. He still has the future under control. Evil doesn't win this day. Ahab and Jezebel, they're not there at the end. God has already worked out who takes over after them. In fact, that's, that's God's point, even through verse 17, is it talking about, you know, this person, you know, those who escape by this sword are going to be taken by this sword, by this sword, all right? God's saying, look, look, nobody's getting away with anything. Actually, I have this all covered. You're, you're so worried about Jezebel and what she could possibly do. Don't worry. I've already got things planned far past her. And then in verse 18, he adds one more detail. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah has been telling God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left. And God responds and says, no, I got 7,000 other people who have all been following after me. And here's the reminder for us, Right? Whenever we are, we're looking and we're saying, God, your plan's failing. Remember, God is doing 7,000 other things besides what he's doing with us. And far more than that. Paul writes in the very same way in chap uh, Romans chapter 9. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belongs to Israel. Right? It might look bad on the outside, but God already knows who are his people and God is in control. Right? Despite the people not all following him immediately, despite Jezebel and all of her machinations that she's going to try and do, despite even Elijah's disobedience. See, I said at the beginning, here is a, it's an interesting thing because Elijah runs, but God doesn't tell him to run, does he? 
God hadn't told Elijah, go run away. No, Elijah did that on his own. That's the first time in this story that Elijah has done something God has not told him to do. And now here we're going to see the second one right now. God says, I want you to go back to Damascus and start anointing these new kings. Elijah doesn't do that. It's the first time God has told him to do something, and Elijah hasn't actually done it. In fact, these two kings don't get anointed until far into Elisha's ministry after Elijah's gone. But what he does do is he goes back and he finds Elisha, right? Most likely, and this is me just speculating, I think he's looking for a companion. He's looking for someone who can be alongside him. He's been alone, and so he goes and he finds Elisha. But even then, he doesn't actually anoint him. He actually just calls him to follow along, right? The story of Elisha actually reflects far better on Elisha than it does Elijah. Now, I know this is the part where everything gets really complicated because these guys have almost the same name, all right? I'm aware of that. But Elisha, he's in the field, all right? And we're told he's plowing with 12 oxen. What we're intended to understand by that is he's doing well, all right? He is well off. To have 12 oxen to plow a field, that's nuts. That's tons of, tons of animals. He's doing well. Elijah comes along, throws his cloak onto him, a sign, all right, come, follow after me. And Elisha drops everything. He says, let me quickly go back and say goodbye to my parents. Elijah says, fine, just don't forget what I've done. He goes back and then he, he slaughters the animals and burns them, has a massive party for everyone in the community and basically says, I'm out, I'm gone. He, he quite literally is burning bridges so that he has nowhere to go back to, right? This actually, right, what we see in Elisha is he is willing to say, I, I am all in. God has called me to follow after him, I'm gone, right? In contrast to, to Elijah here in his very, very weak moments of faith, Elisha is coming with full commitment saying, I will follow wherever God is calling me. But the point that we're meant to understand here is that God is still the one in control. When we look through God's eyes, he is still the one who is in control of the future, and that should actually give us hope. So I asked at the very beginning, is Elijah overreacting or is he seeing things clearly? In one sense, the answer is both, right? Elijah expected that this mountaintop moment would have a transformation that that would never stop, right? He had massive expectations about what was going to happen after that moment. And so now as he's looking, he's saying, but it didn't happen. It's true. He is seeing that clearly. He's just not seeing the whole picture. He's not looking at it from God's eyes and realizing, actually, Elijah, you're not the Savior, You're not the savior in God's plan of salvation. In fact, Elijah is simply meant to point us forward to the one who is. See, we know Elijah's not the savior because he needs saving. He is is in desperate need of someone to deal with his own sins who is actually going to follow God perfectly because he can't do it. As good as Elijah is at following God, he can't do it perfectly. He is not the Savior. He needs a Savior. And really what we're intended to see all throughout this passage is he's getting us ready for the coming of Jesus. 
Jesus, who will also spend 40 days and 40 nights not eating, whom God will also send angels to minister to, and Jesus' own ministry, which will look like for a moment that it has failed completely. Jesus is executed. He is put on a cross. Yeah, they wanted to kill Elijah, but they do kill Jesus. But what we realize when we see that from God's eyes is even that was part of God's plan. Jesus is put to death so that our sins can be forgiven. The punishment for our sins is taken on Jesus, not on us. Even then, God's plan hasn't failed because Jesus rises again that we would have the hope of eternal life. See, when we are stuck in our own mindset, when we're stuck looking through our own lenses, our own eyes, we miss what God is doing and we miss the grand hope that we have for the future. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, he says, he, God, saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God does not save us because we are good enough, because we get everything right, and because we never stumble. That's not why God saves us. He saves us because he is merciful and gracious towards us, and he saves us because of what Jesus has done that we might have hope in eternal life. See, when we understand what God is doing in the grand scheme, it does give us hope for the future. Our hope in Jesus does not change. So do not focus on what we can see around us through our human-centered eyes. Rather, let us trust in the grace and patience of our God as we place our hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. Lord, we are so thankful that your plans do not fail. Lord, that even when we can't understand what is happening around us, even when it seems to our eyes like all hope is lost, Lord, we know that you are in control, that you are the one who is working all things according to your will, and that we have hope in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, give us eyes to see things the way that you have done them. Lord, can we see more of what you are doing in and around our world, that we might worship you, that we might trust in you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your patience with us as we struggle and as we get it wrong. Lord, you are gracious and patient with us. Father, might we trust in you through the hope we have in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to close our service here by taking communion together. So if you, if you uh, have your communion elements, I'll invite you to open these as, uh, as we get started. There are some at the back if you do need to grab them. You can begin by opening the top layer, opens up to the bread. The second will open up to the juice. But communion is a, a symbol. If you're unfamiliar with what communion is, it is a symbol. It is a reminder for us of ultimately what Jesus has done, of what we've just talked about. 
right? Jesus went to the cross. He, he died in our place. And so what we are doing is we are reminding ourselves of that sacrifice, of what our sins have cost, but ultimately of what Jesus has done for us. And so what, what it means to participate in communion, what it ta- means to actually eat the bread, drink the cup, what that means is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are trusting in him and in him alone as, the salva- as your salvation, you are following after him. And so if that doesn't describe you right now, my, my encouragement is simply just leave it aside. No one, no one here is judging. We've all been at that point where we have not partaken as well. But for all those of you who are, what we are doing is not simply a reminder. It is a reminder, but it's a reminder of who Jesus is, of what he has done. And so we take that seriously. The Bible calls us to actually examine ourselves and to confess any unconfessed sins before the Lord, and then to come to him. So I'm going to give us just a moment here in silence. We're going to be a little bit quieter this communion, uh, during this communion than perhaps we sometimes are, simply in reminder that we are called to be still and patient before the Lord. So I'm going to give you a moment to simply pray in the quietness of your heart, and then we'll, we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sweetness that it is that you have sent Jesus to us that we might be saved. Lord, it is not because we are good enough, it is not because we have done the right things, but it is because of your mercy that we come before you. Father, thank you for the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. Amen. First Corinthians says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Invite you to open the cup as well. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ that his death and resurrection has paid fully for our sins, that we might be forgiven and that we have the hope of eternal life. Lord, we thank you for your grace and we pray that you would remind us more and more of the hope that is found in you. In your name, amen.